Now, please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2. And this evening our text will be verses 1 through 7. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 7. And let's give careful attention to this because it is the very word of God. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray now and ask him to bless it to us. Lord, we pray your blessing upon the reading and the ministry of the word now. We pray that you will show us Christ Jesus. We pray you'd speak to our hearts. May your spirit speak to us through the very word that he breathed out. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to believe that June is almost here, but Wednesday is June 1st. Wednesday, right? Yeah, June 1st. And as June rolls around, so does another hurricane season. It's almost here. And um, when hurricane season approaches, it's time to prepare. And in recent years, God has been very merciful to this area. And uh, we've uh, not experienced any devastation recently. But suppose just for a moment, and I haven't heard any forecasts about whether this is going to be an especially active hurricane season and uh, you know how forecasts are anyway, but uh, let's just say we're in hurricane season and there's a Cat 5 hurricane headed right for Beaufort. You're going to take action, aren't you? You're going to prepare. In fact, if a hurricane that devastating was coming right for us, probably we'd do more than just prepare. We would flee. We would evacuate. And isn't it interesting that God's calls to repentance 
are similar to that because he's warning of something that's coming, something that we had better prepare for, something that we had better flee, the day of his wrath. And if it makes sense to prepare for a hurricane, if it makes sense to evacuate, if disaster like that is coming, how much more sense does it make to flee from the wrath to come, to to flee from the wrath of Almighty God? Because natural disasters, as bad as they sometimes are, as destructive as they sometimes are, any kind of humanitarian crisis, none of those sorts of things are worthy to be compared to the day of the Lord. Well, the the dreadful warnings that we heard about in the previous chapter of Zephaniah were intended to turn Judah back to God. And what we see in this text tonight is the same. God is beckoning His people to repent of their sins, to turn back to Him, and to flee to Him for refuge from His wrath. Matthew Henry said, of all these warnings. Because I know that as we, as we continue on through the minor prophets, it seems like we're hearing some of the same sorts of things repeatedly. And there's a very good reason for that. Because the prophets were sent to a rebellious and a stubborn people, and God is pleading with them to repent. God is pleading with them to turn back to Him because His wrath is coming. And these words sometimes sound harsh to us, especially when they're addressed to God's people. But Matthew Henry said, God's design was not to drive people to despair, but to drive them to God and to their duty. Not to frighten them out of their wits, but to frighten them out of their sins. And this text teaches us that the certainty of coming judgment should motivate us to turn to God, to seek the Lord. Only two points tonight. The first point would be this word of warning that's given to Judah, and it's found in verses 1 through 3, and then a word of doom that's uttered against Philistia, and that's in verses 4 through 7. And God's words to the Philistines, or to the land of the Philistines, is just the beginning, because they're in the verses that follow, that Lord willing we'll look at in the days ahead, uh, are words of warning to other nations, surrounding nations, surrounded Israel. But first of all, we have this word of warning to Judah. And again, I say it's just a two-point sermon, but if you like threes, uh, this word of warning to Judah is broken down into three things. Uh, We've got a rebuke, we've got a warning, and we've got a call. Uh, In verse 1, God calls for a convocation. Gather together. Yes, gather, he says. And the following verses show that this is a call to turn back to God. And here's where we find the rebuke. God calls them shameless. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Now, what the ESV is rendering for us as shameless, it's it's a difficult... It's difficult to translate this this phrase that we find in Hebrew, at least uh, in this context... Um, it literally means something like not desired or undesirable, undesirable nation, uh, or it's got the, a negative uh, 
conjunction and then the, a word that means desire. So it could be a nation that has no desire, no desire for God, no desire to seek after him. Uh, it seems, though, that a number of he- Hebrew scholars have come to understand it in this context as um, shameless, and that's why many of our English versions uh, translate it that way. But however you translate it, God is scolding them. He's chastising his people for their sins, for their obstinacy, for their rebellion and their stubbornness. Shameless nation. There's another thing that's kind of part of the rebuke. He calls them a nation. He doesn't refer to them as his people. He calls them a nation. And the Hebrew word that's used there in, in, the, in, in Scripture is most often used to, re, to refer to the Gentiles. It's reserved for the other nations. And he's calling Judah a nation. As if to say they're, in so many ways, no different than the rest. This peculiar people he'd called to himself. That he wanted to be different. That he wanted to stand out among the nations. And yet, they were just like the nations. So that's, that's the rebuke. Then we have a warning, an urgent message. And you see the urgency of it in the repeated use of the word before in verse 2. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. You see the urgency there. He's calling them to repent and he's saying, do it now before all this disaster comes, before the decree takes effect. And the Hebrew there actually has reference to pregnancy, has reference to childbirth, as if to say that this wrath of God that's on its way, that's coming, (coughs) this day of His wrath, it's as if a woman who's Great with child. She's going to deliver any time. She's going to go into labor at any moment. God is saying, my wrath, my coming wrath is like that. (coughs) So turn. Turn before this wrath is brought forth. Excuse me. We are told about the day of the Lord in chapter 1 of Zephaniah. And God's saying now it's fast approaching. It's coming. It's imminent. And there's no time to waste. Before the decree takes effect. Before the day passes like chaff. Now you know what chaff is, right? It's the hull that uh, surrounds grain. If any of you have a parakeet, you feed the parakeet bird seed, and the parakeet sticks his beak into the, into the little container where the, where the seed is. He uses the sharp point of his beak to dig out the, the actual grain, the kernel, and then you get all this weightless junk, and it's so light that it flies out of the cage, and it gets all over your floor. You know what I'm talking about, right? Chaff, that's what chaff is. It's these weightless husks that cover grain, and they blow away in the wind. There's no recovering it. You can't get it back. You try to sweep it up, try to collect it up, and it's just going everywhere. And because it's so light, the wind carries it away quickly. 
And that quickness is used to illustrate the swiftness of the coming of God's wrath. There's no holding it back. And once it gets out, there's the opportunity for repentance is gone. That's why it's so urgent. So he's saying, repent before the day passes like chaff. <clears throat> before the day of God's anger comes. Well, in view of the coming day of God's burning anger, what does God urge the people to do? What is the call? We've seen the rebuke, we've seen the warning, now the call. And the call is this, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Who's this admonition addressed to? It says, all you humble of the land. See, praise be to God that by His grace, in the midst of this shameless nation, there's still a remnant A remnant of people who are poor in spirit. A remnant of people who are meek. And because humility, true godly humility, manifests itself in obedience, he speaks in those terms. All you humble of the land who do his just commands. These are the ones to whom God is calling. He's appealing to them. Seek the Lord. And there's this threefold call. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Seek the Lord Himself. And the first thing is, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, He says. And that, <clears throat> that's really the sum of it all. And that command to seek the Lord is a summons not just to the humble of Judah. It's a command and, a, and an admonition and a summons to all people of the earth. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. And although Zephaniah's words were focused in that context directly and immediately to the people of Judah, calling out to those within the, the nation who were humble or who would humble themselves and turn from their sin, this call in Isaiah 55 is issued to all. It's a universal summons. <coughs> Seek the Lord, and listen to this, while He may be found. An urgent warning, cautioning us that there will come a time when God, you will not be able to reach Him. You will not be able to find Him. But now He can be found, so seek Him while He can be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Don't wait until he's far off. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You see the promise of pardon there. There's hope extended to those who seek the Lord. So that's the call. Seek the Lord. And hand in hand, <clears throat> with this spirit-breathed call to seek the Lord, we have also a spirit-breathed elaboration on what it is to seek the Lord. To seek the Lord also means to seek righteousness. Because you can't truly seek the Lord without obedience. We discussed this in, in Sunday school class this morning. Anyone who's truly 
exercising saving faith will also exercise repentance. We'll also be diligent to do good works. And so the Lord says, seek righteousness. And He says, seek humility. Now that's something that's not natural to fallen man, is it? Fallen man, including each of us in, in this room tonight, by nature, are proud. We're haughty. Humility is something we have to seek. It's something we have to cultivate. And God desires that we do that. Psalm 18, verse 27 says to the Lord, You save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Or Isaiah 66, verse 2, when God describes Himself and how He's high and lifted up and He dwells in a high and holy place, He says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. These go together. They're like fruit of the Spirit. You don't slice up fruit of the Spirit and take some and leave the other. Fruit of the Spirit is one whole fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Seeking the Lord means seeking righteousness. It means seeking humility. And what happens for those who will do that? What does Zephaniah say will be the outcome for the people who heed this call and do seek the Lord? He says, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And perhaps that word perhaps frightens you a little bit, thinking, well, is this not a done deal? Is this not a definite thing? Can I be confident that the Lord will have mercy upon me if I seek Him? Yes, you can. That perhaps there in the Scripture is not intended to cast any doubt on God's grace or the sincerity of His offer. But it's there, I think, to teach us that we can be confident in God's grace, but we must never presume upon God's grace. And so the prophet even illustrates that. He bears that out by saying, perhaps you may be hidden. It further, gives further urgency to this word of warning to Judah. So Judah gets a word of warning, but Philistia receives a word of doom. That's what we find in verses 4-7. through seven. God has addressed Judah now, and after having done that, After judgment begins in the house of the Lord, he turns his gaze to the surrounding nations, beginning with the Philistines. There are a couple of things uh, to note about the Philistines and the the land of Philistia. First of all, the territory of the Philistines originally was intended to be part of the promised land that God was giving to his people. If you go back and you read the Pentateuch, and you, God tells them all the land He's going to give to His people, all the land He's going to bring into them, bring them into, and give to them as their inheritance, and it included where the Philistines dwelt. It was on the sea coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So, if you can imagine in a map, in your mind, a map, and you've got Israel there, and to the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea, down to the southwest, sort of between Israel and Egypt. 
That's where the land of the Philistines was. And it was supposed to be part of their inheritance. But Israel, as they went in and took possession of the land, as you may very well know, they failed to fully eradicate a number of the peoples that were dwelling in the land. God told them to annihilate them. And in a lot of cases, they didn't do that. And some of the, uh, some of the survivors of Israel's failure to make full conquest of the land were these Philistines. So these people, they remained among the Israelites, and as they did, uh, they grew. They became firmly established there. You know, in a lot of cases, the, the remaining peoples were sort of subdued, and Israel eventually subdued them. These people that they were supposed to kill didn't. They, they sort of uh, dwindled, and they became forced laborers for the Israelites, but they were still among Israel and still drawing them away, in so many cases, to idolatry. The Philistines actually remained, and they grew stronger, and they became their own nation again. And for the rest of Israel's history, they were a thorn in the side of God's covenant people. <clears throat> now, there were f- the, the nation of the Philistines was, was uh, sort of centered around five major cities. And there are four of them listed in verse 4 of our text. Um, and the one that's missing might be the, mo- the one that's most familiar to you because there was this guy from the city of Gath whose name was Goliath. You remember him? Goliath came from Gath. Gath was one of the five major Philistine cities, but it's not mentioned here. And there's a lot of speculation as to why not. Probably at this point, at the, in the days in which Zephaniah prophesied, Gath was under Israelite control. Because it went back and forth. Sometimes the Philistines had it. Sometimes Israel had it. Under the reign of David, uh, pretty much all of Philistia was subdued to Israel. Uh, but <clears throat> be that as it may, you've only got the four cities mentioned here. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And they're, they're listed, as, as they're named, they're, they're named geographically from south to north. And the first three cities are right on the coast. God says Gaza is going to be deserted. He said Ashkelon was going to be a desolation. These cities, in other words, are going to be overthrown completely. God is pronouncing doom upon them. It says Ashdod's people will be driven out at noon. We're not certain what the significance of that is, except that it may mean that their downfall is going to be so sudden and so swift and so decisive that conquering the city of Ashdod was going to take less than a day. Before a full day of conflict had passed, they would be carried off into exile, defeated, driven out. And then Ekron, of the four cities named here, Ekron is the only one that's not right on the coast. Ekron is sort of inland a little bit. And uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with why the description of Ekron's demise is described (coughs) in terms of being uprooted. You know, they're not there at the coast. They're they're in the land. God's going to rip them up by the roots like you would do to a weed. Necron's going to wither and die. You notice in verse 5 the word woe. Woe to you inhabitants of the sea coast, you nation of the Cherethites. 
The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. What dreadful words to hear. What a horrible thing for anyone's ears. The word of the Lord is against you. But that's God's message to the people of Philistia. No survivors. There's a remnant in Judah, but he speaks of no remnant among the Philistines. No hope, in other words. And what was formerly the place of cities is going to become pasture lands. Places that were thriving metropolises of the day will just be for herds and flocks. Now there's a connection between these four verses, verses four through seven, that are about Philistia and the first three verses. But depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, you might not see the connection. (coughs) In the ESV, verse four says, for Gaza shall be deserted. Some English versions, for whatever reason, don't include the word for. It's there, the conjunction is there in the Hebrew, uh, but it's dropped in some of our versions. But that word for is significant because uh, it shows a connection between what God is going to do to the cities of Philistia and what he calls the people of Judah to do. And that connection is simply that since God's judgment is certainly coming and he's going to utterly overthrow the Philistines, that should motivate his people to repent so that they don't meet the same fate. should motivate the people of Judah to seek the Lord. See, God is going to to bless them. Even in the midst of and as a result of his curse and his doom upon Philistia. Look at verse 7. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. Remember when God told the people of Israel to go in and inhabit the land, he said to them on a number of occasions, you're going to live in houses that you didn't build. You're going to eat of vines that you didn't plant. And that's what he's saying here. These houses in Ashkelon, you're going to dwell in them, you remnant of Judah. Now remember, this region was originally designated for Israel. You can see it in Joshua chapter 13, verse 3, among other places. But again, the Philistines were one of the groups that Israel failed to drive out, failed to subdue, failed to destroy. But I think there's wonderful gospel hope in this for us because God says to his people, to the remnant of his people, I'm going to wipe out the Philistines And you're going to inhabit their land. You're going to live in their houses. In other words, what man fails to do, what man can't do, God is going to do for them. They were supposed to destroy the Philistines. They didn't. And it was a matter of disobedience, frankly. But God's going to do it. What they wouldn't do, what they couldn't do, God will do. And that teaches us about Christ because the things we can't do, 
Christ does. The things we couldn't do, Christ did. He fulfills for us all the righteous requirement of God. Now, Zephaniah's prophecy spoke in the most immediate sense of a devastation that was coming to the land, coming to the Philistines, and this devastation was going to come in historical terms from the nation of Babylon. Babylon, this nation that was so fierce, so powerful, it was going to overshadow uh, what Assyria had done previously. Babylon was coming, and Philistia would become desolate. <clears throat> and you might be thinking, well, thanks for the, the history lesson, but what does that have to do with me? Well, here's what it has to do with you. Because these historical events and this prophecy about them foreshadows another judgment that's coming. There is a final universal judgment on the way. And it's not one for just one area of the world. Not one against just a few specific nations. It's for all the world. It's for all the nations. It's for all the people of all ages. The living and the dead. That judgment is coming. And it's sure to come, but God is patiently waiting for people to repent. He waits and He calls. He asks people, seek Me. Seek My face. Flee from the wrath to come. And His rebuke and His gracious warning and His gospel call go out not just to the people of Judah, but to all people, including you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. What are some other applications we can make from this passage? Well, how about this? The Lord has regard for the humble. He looks upon them with His favor. He has no regard for the proud. He has no regard for, and He does not esteem, those who are self-righteous. But He calls the humble to seek righteousness in Him. To seek humility before Him. God has regard for the humble. That's one thing that this passage teaches us. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. And then finally, what we saw in verse 7, I think, teaches a a scriptural principle, one that we see uh, several times, for instance, in the book of Proverbs, and that is the wealth of the wicked... It's being stored up for the righteous. In the cosmic sense, in the eternal sense, the unrighteous not will, will not be able to retain anything they have. The unrighteous may own lands. They may have great possessions. They may have tremendous wealth. They may exercise considerable power and may enjoy many, many comforts. But they won't be able to keep any of it. They will not be able to retain anything they have. But those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ inherit eternal life. Life everlasting. 
Those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. They're heirs to an inheritance that is eternal and incorruptible. Verse 7 is kind of a picture of that. God's mindfulness of His elect. God's mindfulness of all of you who have trusted in Him. It's a guarantee that He will restore the fortunes of all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been united to Christ by faith. All things will be made new when we inherit that better country better than the coastlands there in Philistia, an eternal, perfect, heavenly home. God promises that to each of you who trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, grant us grace daily to seek you. And through the ministry of the gospel, we pray that many throughout the earth, who have not previously sought you, will be moved to seek you, that you will draw many to yourself, even this very day. Build your church by doing that, we pray. And we thank you for your mercy to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the inheritance that is laid up for us. Remember us, we pray. Have regard for us. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, And we ask it in his name. Amen.